0: Chapter nineteen Chapter twenty chapter twenty one Smith in the City This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, please visit Librivox.blogsum dot com Recording by Eileen of the Public Domain Podcast Smith in the City by PG Woodhouse Chapter nineteen. THE ILLNESS OF EDWARD Life in a bank is at its pleasantest in the winter, when all the world outside is dark and damp and cold, the light and warmth of the place are comforting. There is a pleasant air of solidity about the interior of a bank. The green-shaded lamps look cosy, and, the outside world offering so few attractions, the worker, perched on his stool, feels that he is not so badly off after all. It is when the days are long, and the sun beats hot on the pavement, and everything shouts to him how splendid it is out in the country, that he begins to grow restless. Mike, except for a fortnight at the beginning of his career in the new Asiatic bank, had not had to stand the test of sunshine. At present, the weather being cold and dismal, he was almost entirely contented. Now that he had got into the swing of his work, the days passed very quickly, and with his life after office hours he had no fault to find at all. His life was very regular. He would arrive in the morning just in time to sign his name to the attendance-book before it was removed to the accountant's room. That was at ten o'clock. From ten to eleven he would potter. There was nothing going on at that time in his department, and Mr. Waller seemed to take it for granted that he would stroll off to the postage department and talk to Smith, who had generally some fresh grievance against the ring-wearing Bristow to air. From eleven to half-past twelve he would put in a little gentle work. Lunch, unless there was a rush of business, or Mr. Waller appeared to suffer from a spasm of conscientiousness, could be spun out from half-past twelve to two. More work from two till half-past three. From half-past three till half-past four, tea in the tea-room, with a novel. And from half-past four till five, either a little more work or more pottering, according to whether there was any work to do or not. It was by no means an unpleasant mode of spending a late January day. Then there was no doubt that it was an interesting little community, that of the new Asiatic Bank. The curiously amateurish nature of the institution lent a certain air of light-heartedness to the place. It was not like one of those banks, whose London office is their main office, where stern business is everything, and a man becomes a mere machine for getting through a certain amount of routine work. The employees of the new Asiatic Bank, having plenty of time on their hands, were able to retain their individuality. They had leisure to think of other things besides their work. Indeed, they had so much leisure that it is a wonder they thought of their work at all. The place was full of quaint characters. There was West, who had been requested to leave Haley owing to his habit of borrowing horses and attending meets in the neighborhood, the same being always out of bounds and necessitating a complete disregard of the rules respecting Evening Chapel and lock up. He was a small, dried-up youth, with black hair plastered down on his head, He went about his duties in a costume which suggested the sportsman of the comic papers. There was also Hignett, who added to the meager salary allowed him by the bank, by singing comic songs at the minor music halls. He confided to Mike his intention of leaving the bank as soon as he had made a name, and taking seriously to the business. He told him that he had knocked them at the Bedford the week before, and in support of the statement showed him a cutting from the era, in which the writer said that, other acceptable turns were the bounding Suaves, Steingruber's dogs, and Arthur Hignett. Mike wished him luck. And there was Raymond, who dabbled in journalism, and was the author of Straight Talks to Housewives and Trifles, under the pseudonym of Lady Gussie. Rag, who believed that the earth was flat, and addressed meetings on the subject in Hyde Park on Sundays, and many others, still interesting to talk to of a morning when work was slack and time had to be filled in. Mike found himself... By degrees, growing quite attached to the new Asiatic bank. One morning, early in February, he noticed a curious change in Mr. Waller. The head of the cash department was, as a rule, mildly cheerful on arrival, and apt—excessively, Mike thought, though he always listened with polite interest—to relate the most recent sayings and doings of his snub-nosed son, Edward. No action of this young prodigy was withheld from Mike. He had heard, on different occasions, how he had won a prize at his school for general information, which Mike could well believe, how he had trapped young Mr. Richards, now happily reconciled to Ada, with an ingenious verbal catch, and how he had made a sequence of diverting puns on the name of the new curate, during the course of that cleric's first Sunday afternoon visit. On this particular day, however, the cashier was silent and absent-minded. He answered Mike's good morning mechanically, and, sitting down at his desk, stared blankly across the building. There was a curiously grey, tired look on his face. Mike could not make it out. He did not like to ask if there was anything the matter. Mr. Waller's face had the unreasonable effect on him of making him feel shy and awkward. Anything in the nature of sorrow always dried Mike up and robbed him of the power of speech. Being naturally sympathetic, he had raged inwardly in many a crisis at this devil of dumb awkwardness which possessed him and prevented him from putting his sympathy into words. He had always envied the cooing readiness of the hero on the stage when anyone was in trouble. He wondered whether he would acquire that knack of pouring out a limpid stream of soothing words on such occasions. At present he could get no farther than a scowl and an almost offensive gruffness. The happy thought struck him of consulting Smith. It was his hour for pottering, so he pottered round to the postage department, where he found the old Etonian eyeing with disfavor a new satin tie which Bristow was wearing that morning for the first time. "'I say, Smith,' he asked, "'I want to speak to you for a second.' Smith rose. Mike led the way to a quiet corner of the telegrams department. "'I tell you, Comrade Jackson,' said Smith, "'I am hard-pressed. The fight is beginning to be too much for me. After a grim struggle, after days of unremitting toil, I succeeded yesterday in inducing the man Bristow to abandon that rainbow waistcoat of his. Today I enter the building, blith and buoyant, worn, of course, from the long struggle.' "'but seeing with aching eyes the dawn of another, better era. "'And there is Comrade Bristow in a saddened tie. "'It's hard, Comrade Jackson. "'It's hard, I tell you.' "'Look here, Smith,' said Mike. "'I wish you'd go round to the cache "'and find out what's up with old Waller. "'He's got the hump about something. "'He's sitting there looking absolutely fed up with things. "'I hope there's nothing up. "'He's not a bad sort. "'It would be rot if anything rotten's happened.' Smith began to display a gentle interest. So other people have troubles as well as myself, he murmured musingly. I had almost forgotten that. Comrade Waller's misfortunes cannot but be trivial compared with mine, but possibly it will be as well to ascertain their nature. I will reel round and make inquiries. Good man, said Mike, I'll wait here. Smith departed, and returned, ten minutes later, looking more serious than when he had left. Is kid's ill, poor chap,' he said briefly. "'Pretty badly, too. From what I can gather, pneumonia. Waller was up all night. He oughtn't to be here at all today. He doesn't know what he's doing half the time. He's absolutely fagged out. Look here, you'd better nip back and do as much of the work as you can. I shouldn't talk to him much if I were you. Buck along.' Mike went. Mr. Waller was still sitting staring out across the aisle. There was something more than a little gruesome in the sight of him. He wore a crushed, beaten look as if all the life and fight had gone out of him. A customer came to the desk to cast a check. The cashier shoveled the money to him under the bars with the air of one whose mind is elsewhere. Mike could guess what he was feeling, and what he was thinking about. The fact that the snub-nosed Edward was, without exception, the most repulsive small boy he had ever met in this world, where repulsive small boys crowd and jostle one another, did not interfere with his appreciation of the cashier's state of mind. He had the gift of intuitive understanding where people of whom he was fond were concerned. It was this which drew to him those who had intelligence enough to see beyond his sometimes rather forbidding manner, and to realize that his blunt speech was largely due to shyness. In spite of his prejudice against Edward, he could put himself into Mr. Walder's place and see the thing from his point of view. Smith's induction to him not to talk much was unnecessary. Mike, as always, was rendered utterly dumb by the sight of suffering— He sat at his desk, occupying himself as best he could with the driblets of work which came to him. Mr. Waller's silence and absentness continued unchanged. The habit of years had made his work mechanical. Probably few of the customers who came to cash checks suspected that there was anything the matter with the man who paid them their money. After all, most people look on the cashier of a bank as a sort of human slot machine. You put in your check, and out comes money. It is no affair of yours whether life is treating the machine well or ill that day." The hours dragged slowly by till five o'clock struck, and the cashier, putting on his coat and hat, passed silently out through the swing doors. He walked listlessly. He was evidently tired out. Mike shut his ledger with a vicious bang, and went across to find Smith. He was glad the day was over. CHAPTER Twenty, CONCERNING A CHECK Things never happen quite as one expects them to. Mike came to the office next morning prepared for a repetition of the previous day. He was amazed to find the cashier not merely cheerful, but even exuberantly cheerful. Edward, appeared, had rallied in the afternoon, and, when his father had got home, had been out of danger. He was now going along excellently, and had stumped Ada, who was nursing him, with a question about the Thirty Years' War, only a few minutes before his father had left to catch his train. The cashier was overflowing with happiness and goodwill towards his species. He greeted customers with bright remarks on the weather and snappy views on the leading events of the day. The former tinged with optimism, the latter full of a gentle spirit of toleration. His attitude towards the latest actions of His Majesty's government was that of one who felt that, after all, there was probably some good even in the vilest of his fellow creatures, if one could only find it. Altogether, the cloud had lifted from the cash department. All was joy, jollity, and song. "'The attitude of Comrade Waller,' said Smith, who, being informed of the change, is reassuring. I may now think of my own troubles. Comrade Bristow has blown into the office to-day in patent leather boots with white kid uppers, as I believe the technical term is. And to that the fact that he is still wearing the satin tie, the waistcoat, and the ring, and you will understand why I have definitely decided this morning to abandon all hope of his reform. Henceforth my services, for what they are worth, are at the disposal of Comrade Bickersdyke. My time from now onward is his. He shall have the full educative value of my exclusive attention. I give Comrade Bristow up. Made straight for the corner flag, you understand, he added, as Mr. Rossiter emerged from the women's lair. And centred, and Sandy Turnbull headed a beautiful goal. I was just telling Jackson about the match against Blackburn Rovers, he said to Mr. Rossiter. Just so, just so. But get on with your work, Smith. We are a little behind hand. I think perhaps it would be as well not to leave it just yet." "'I will leave at it at once,' said Smith cordially. The day passed quickly. Mr. Waller, in the intervals of work, talked a good deal, mostly of Edward, his doings, his sayings, and his prospects. The only thing that seemed to worry Mr. Waller was the problem of how to employ his son's almost superhuman talents to the best advantage. Most of the goals towards which the average man strives struck him as too unambitious for the prodigy. By the end of the day, Mike had had enough of Edward. He never wished to hear the name again. We do not claim originality for the statement that things never happen quite as one expects them to. We repeat it now because of its profound truth. The Edward's pneumonia episode having ended satisfactorily, or rather, being apparently certain to end satisfactorily, for the invalid, though out of danger, was still in bed. Mike looked forward to a series of days unbroken by any but the minor troubles of life. For these he was prepared. What he did not expect was any big calamity. At the beginning of the day there were no signs of it. The sky was blue and free from all suggestions of approaching thunderbolts. Mr. Waller, still chirpy, had nothing but good news of Edward. Mike went for his morning stroll round the office feeling that things had settled down and had made up their mind to run smoothly. When he got back, barely half an hour later, the storm had burst. There was no one in the department at the moment of his arrival but a few minutes later he saw Mr. Waller come out of the manager's room and make his way down the aisle. It was his walk which first gave him any hint that something was wrong. It was the same limp, crushed walk which Mike had seen when Edward's safety still hung in the balance. As Mr. Waller came nearer, Mike saw that the cashier's face was deadly pale. Mr. Waller caught sight of him and quickened his pace. "'Jackson,' he said. Mike came forward. Do you remember, he spoke slowly and with an effort, Do you remember a check coming through the day before yesterday for a hundred pounds with Sir John Morrison's signature? Yes, it came in the morning, rather late. Mike remembered the cheque perfectly well, owing to the amount. It was the only three-figure cheque which had come across the counter during the day. It had been presented just before the cashier had gone out to lunch. He recollected the man who had presented it, a tallish man with a beard. He noticed him particularly because of the contrast between his manner and that of the cashier. The former had been so very cheery and breezy, the latter so dazed and silent. "'Why?' he said. It was a forgery, muttered Mr. Waller, sitting down heavily. Mike could not take it in all at once. He was stunned. All he could understand was that a far worse thing had happened than anything he could have imagined. A forgery, he said. A forgery. And a clumsy one. Oh, it's hard. I should have seen it on any other day but that. I could not have missed it. They showed me the check in there, just now. I could not believe that I had passed it. I don't remember doing it. My mind was far away. I don't remember the check or anything about it. Yet there it is." Once more Mike was tongue-tied. For the life of him he could not think of anything to say. Surely, he thought, he could find something, in the shape of words, to show his sympathy. But he could find nothing that would not sound horribly stilted and cold. He sat silent. "'Sir John is in there,' went the cashier. "'He was furious. "'Mr. Bickersdyke, too. You are both furious. "'I shall be dismissed. "'I shall lose my place. "'I shall be dismissed.' "'He was talking more to himself than to Mike. "'It was dreadful to see him sitting there, "'all limp and broken. "'I shall lose my place. "'Mr. Bickersdyke has wanted to get rid of me "'for a long time. "'He never liked me. "'I shall be dismissed. "'What can I do? "'I'm an old man.' I can't make another start. I'm good for nothing. Nobody will take an old man like me." His voice died away. There was a silence. Mike sat staring miserably in front of him. Then, quite suddenly, an idea came to him. The whole pressure of the atmosphere seemed to lift. He saw a way out. It was a curious, crooked way, but at that moment it stretched clear and broad before him. He felt light-hearted and excited as if he were watching the development of some interesting play at the theatre. He got up, smiling. The cashier did not notice the movement. Somebody had come in to cash a cheque, and he was working mechanically. Mike walked up the aisle to Mr. Bickersdyke's room, and went in. The manager was in his chair at the big table. Opposite him, facing slightly sideways, was a small, round, very red-faced man. Mr. Bickersdyke was speaking as Mike entered. "'I can assure you, Sir John,' he was saying. He looked up as the door opened. "'Well, Mr. Jackson?' Mike almost laughed. The situation was tickling him. "'Mr. Waller has told me,' he began. "'I have already seen Mr. Waller.' "'I know. He told me about the check. I came to explain.' "'Explain?' "'Yes. He didn't cash it at all.' "'I don't understand you, Mr. Jackson.' "'I was at the counter when it was brought in,' said Mike. "'I cashed it.'" CHAPTER Twenty One. SMITH MAKES INQUIRIES Smith, as was his habit of a morning when the fierce rush of his commercial duties had abated somewhat, was leaning gracefully against his desk, musing on many things, when he was aware that Bristow was standing before him. Focusing his attention with some reluctance upon this blot on the horizon— he discovered that the exploiter of rainbow waistcoats and satin ties was addressing him. "'I say, Smith,' said Bristow. He spoke in rather an odd voice. "'Say on, comrade Bristow,' said Smith graciously. "'You have our ear. You would seem to have something on your chest in addition to that Neapolitan ice garment which, I regret to see, you still flaunt. If it is one tithe as painful as that, you have my sympathy. Jerk it out, comrade Bristow.' Jackson isn't half copying it from old Bick. What exactly did you say? He's getting it hot on the carpet. You wish to indicate, said Smith, that there was some slight disturbance, some passing breeze between comrades Jackson and Bickersdyke? Bristow chuckled. Breeze, Blooming Hurricane, more like it. I was in Bick's room just now with a letter to sign, and I tell you, the fur was flying all over the belly shop. There was old Bick's cursing for all he was worth, and a little red-faced buffer puffing out his cheeks in an armchair. "'We all have our hobbies,' said Smith. Jackson wasn't saying much. He jolly well hadn't a chance. Old Bick was shooting it out fourteen to the dozen. "'I have been privileged,' said Smith, "'to hear Comrade Bickersdyke speak both in his sanctum and in public. He has, as you suggest, a ready flow of speech. What exactly was the cause of the turmoil?' I couldn't wait to hear. I was too jolly glad to get away. Old Bick looked at me as if he could eat me, snatched the letter out of my hand, signed it, and waved his hand at the door as a hint to hop it. Which I jolly well did. He had started jawing Jackson again before I was out of the room. "'While applauding his hustle,' said Smith, "'I fear that I must take official notice of this. Comrade Jackson is essentially a sensitive plant, highly strung, neurotic. I cannot have his nervous system jolted and disorganized in this manner.' And his value as a confidential secretary and adviser impaired, even though it be only temporarily, I must look into this. I will go and see if the orgy is concluded. I will hear what Comrade Jackson has to say on the matter. I shall not act rashly, Comrade Bristow. if the man Bickersdyke has proved to have had good grounds for his outbreak, he shall escape uncensured. I may even look in on him and throw him a word of praise. But if I find as I suspect that he has wronged Comrade Jackson. I shall be forced to speak sharply to him." Mike had left the scene of battle by the time Smith reached the cash department, and was sitting at his desk in a somewhat dazed condition, trying to clear his mind sufficiently to enable him to see exactly how matters stood as concerned himself. He felt confused and rattled. He had known, when he went to the manager's room to make his statement, that there would be trouble. But then, trouble is such an elastic word. It embraces a hundred degrees of meaning. "'Mike had expected sentence of dismissal, and he had got it. "'So far he had nothing to complain of. "'But he had not expected it to come to him riding high on the crest of a great frothing wave of verbal denunciation. "'Mr. Bickersdyke, though constantly speaking in public, had developed the habit of fluent denunciation to a remarkable extent. "'He had thundered at Mike as if Mike had been His Majesty's Government, or the encroaching Alien, or something of that sort. "'And that kind of thing is a little overwhelming at short range.' Mike's head was still spinning. It continued to spin, but he never lost sight of the fact round which it revolved, namely, that he had been dismissed from the service of the bank, and for the first time he began to wonder what they would say about this at home. Up till now the matter had seemed entirely a personal one. He had charged in to rescue the harassed cashier in precisely the same way as that in which he had dashed in to save him from Bill, the stone flinging scourge of Clapham Common. Mike's was one of those direct, honest minds which are apt to concentrate themselves on the crisis of the moment, and to leave the consequence out of the question entirely. What would they say at home? That was the point. Again, what could he do by way of earning a living? He did not know much about the city and its ways, but he knew enough to understand that summary dismissal from a bank is not the best recommendation one can put forward in applying for another job. And if he did not get another job in the city, what could he do? if it were only summer, he might get taken on somewhere as a cricket professional. Cricket was his line. He could earn his pay at that, but it was very far from being summer. He had turned the problem over in his mind till his head ached, and had eaten in the process one-third of a wooden penholder, when Smith arrived. "'It has reached me,' said Smith, "'that you and Comrade Bickersdyke have been seen doing the hackenschmidt Gotch act on the floor. When my informant left, he tells me, Comrade B. had got a half-Nelson on you, and was biting pieces out of your ear. Is this so? Mike got up. Smith was the man, he felt, to advise him in this crisis. Smith was the mind to grapple with his hard case. Look here, Smith, he said. I want to speak to you. I'm in a bit of a hole, and perhaps you could tell me what to do. Let's go out and have a cup of coffee, shall we? I can't tell you about it here." "'An admirable suggestion,' said Smith. "'Things in the postage department are tolerably quiet at present. "'Naturally I shall be missed if I go out, "'but my absence will not spell irretrievable ruin, "'as it would at a period of greater commercial activity. "'Comrades Rossiter and Bristow have studied my methods. "'They know how I like things to be done. "'They are fully competent to conduct the business of the department in my absence. "'Let us, as you say, scud forth. "'We will go to a mecca.' Why, so-called, I do not know, nor, indeed, do I ever hope to know. There we may obtain, at a price, a passable cup of coffee, and you should tell me your painful story. The mecca, except for the curious aroma which pervades all meccas, was deserted. Smith moved a box of dominoes on to the next table, sat down. Dominoes, he said, is one of the few manly sports which have never had great attractions for me. A cousin of mine, who secured his chess blue at Oxford— would, they tell me, have represented his university in the dominoes match also, had he not unfortunately dislocated the radius bone of his bazooka while training for it. Except for him there has been little Domino's talent in the Smith family. Let us merely talk. What of this slight brass-rag partying—pick up—what of this slight brass-rag parting to which I alluded just now? Tell me all. He listened gravely while Mike related the incidents which had led up to his confession and the results of the same. At the conclusion of the narrative, he sipped his coffee in silence for a moment. "'This habit of taking on to your shoulders the harvest of other people's bloomers,' he said meditatively, "'is growing upon you, Comrade Jackson. "'You must check it. "'It is like dram-drinking. "'You begin it in a small way by breaking school rules to extract Comrade Jellicoe, "'perhaps the supremest of all the blitherers I have ever met, from a hole. "'If you had stopped there, all might have been well.' "'But the thing, once started, fascinated you. "'Now you have landed yourself a splash in the very centre of the oxo "'in order to do a good turn to Comrade Waller. "'You must drop it, Comrade Jackson. "'When you were free and without ties, it did not so much matter. "'But now that you are a confidential secretary and adviser to a Shropshire Smith, "'the thing must stop. "'Your secretarial duties must be paramount. "'Nothing must be allowed to interfere with them. "'Yes, the thing must stop before it goes too far. "'It seems to me said Mike, that it has gone too far. I've got the sack. I don't know how much farther you want it to go. Smith stirred his coffee before replying. True, he said. Things look perhaps a shade rocky just now, but all's not yet lost. You must recollect that Conrad Bickersdyke spoke in the heat of the moment. That generous temperament was stirred to its depths. He did not pick his words." The calm will succeed storm, and we may be able to do something yet. I have some little influence with Comrade Bickersdyke, wrongly, perhaps added Smith modestly, he thinks someone highly of my judgment. if he sees that I am opposed to this step, he may possibly reconsider it. What Smith thinks to-day is his motto. I shall think to-morrow, however, we shall see. I bet we shall said Mike ruefully. there is moreover continued Smith another aspect to the affair. When you were being put through it, in Comrade Bickersdyke's inimitable breezy manner, Sir John What's-His-Name was, I am given to understand, present. Naturally to pacify the aggrieved bart, Comrade B had to lay it on regardless of the expense. In America, as possibly you are aware, there is a regular post of mistake clerk, whose duty it is to receive in the neck anything that happens to be coming along when customers make complaint. He is hauled into the presence of the foaming customer cursed, and sacked. The customer goes away appeased. The mistake clerk, if the harangue has been unusually energetic, applies for a rise of salary. Now, possibly in your case— In my case, interrupted Mike. There was none of that rot. Bikerstrike wasn't putting it on. He meant every word. Why, dash it all. You know yourself he'd be only too glad to sack me, just to get some of his own back with me. Smith's eyes opened in pained surprise. Get some of his own back, he repeated. Are you insinuating, Comrade Jackson, that my relations with Comrade Bickersdyke are not of the most pleasant and agreeable nature possible? How do these ideas get about? I yield to nobody in my respect for our manager. I may have had occasion from time to time to correct him in some trifling matter, but surely is not the man to let such a thing rankle. No. I prefer to think that Comrade Bickersdyke regards me as his friend and well wisher and will lend a courteous ear to any proposal I see fit to make. I hope shortly to be able to prove this to you. I will discuss this little affair of the cheque with him at our ease at the club, and I shall be surprised if we do not come to some arrangement. "'Look here, Smith,' said Mike earnestly. "'For goodness' sake, don't go playing the goat. There is no earthly need for you to get lugged into this business. Don't you worry about me. I shall be all right.' "'I think,' said Smith, "'that you will.' And I have chatted with Comrade Bickersdyke. End of Chapter Nineteen, Twenty, and Twenty-One.